Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, today we come back to Psalm 53, and we're going to finish all six verses today. As you can likely guess, the continued emphasis will simply be on what I preached before, which is the folly of unbelief. Ultimately, what this psalm demonstrates for us is that this is the default position of all mankind. It is that they are fools. Now, that may be a hard pill for many to swallow, but by nature, the way that Scripture describes mankind is that in their natural state, they are given over to the folly of unbelief, and this folly only plays out in ways that folly can. The reason why is quite simple. We knowingly, willingly, and deliberately reject the way of wisdom. It's ultimately because we reject God himself. So what I want everyone to see today is that there are three characteristics, at least in this psalm, that would describe the one the Bible calls the fool. The first characteristic is simply that the fool is bound ultimately by the power and dominion of sin. The second being that the fool is one who persecutes the people of God to his own judgment. The third and final characteristic of the fool is that he deceives himself, ultimately believing that he can destroy the hope of the righteous, even though God's promises ultimately never fail. And so look with me now at verse 1, where we're going to see the first characteristic of the biblical fool. If you remember, David opens this psalm with the line, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And I argued before through an entire sermon that this really sets a scene for the rest of the psalm. The reason why is simple. It shows us a vitally important truth in one little line, one that we must wrestle with and grapple with and come to actually submit ourselves to. I want to hit this again briefly today simply because if you don't ultimately get this one line, you're never going to understand the dominating power of sin or even the destruction of sin. And frankly, you can't be a Christian. Let me just put that incredibly bluntly. What you have to be able to do is come to look at Scripture's assessment of who you are as a sinner and accept that reality. Otherwise, you will never come to the point of seeing Christ as the blessed Savior. If you don't accept that base reality, you will never come to the path of wisdom. More importantly, you'll never see Christ as he is, as the one who is the ultimate remedy for sinners. And I know many right then and there are already in the back of their minds just simply rejecting that reality out of hand, simply because the Bible would define them as a fool. It's not enough for one to believe in God. It will never ultimately be enough to simply claim that truth as your reality. The demons believe God is one, and yet what do they do but tremble because they know they will spend an eternity in the lake of fire. The stark reality that this psalm paints for us is that the mere belief in there being a God does not make one into a wise man. It doesn't even make you any wiser than one who ultimately rejects the basis of God. The way this psalm displays this reality, though, is by highlighting a very simple and yet vitally important truth. 
Categorically speaking, there are only two types of people on earth. There is the wise man and there is the fool. That's how the Bible sees it. That's how God sees all of humanity. The wise man is one who is defined as the one who places their full hope and trust in God and God alone. And specifically, as we come to the New Testament, we see the fullness of one's faith is ultimately to be placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners. And so let me put it plainly or bluntly as possible. If you are the person today who rejects the teachings contained in the Bible regarding who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he will come again to do, you are not, as the Bible would define it, a Christian. You cannot be. You cannot pick and choose what parts about Jesus you will believe and which you will reject and somehow have a valid faith. It's just not how this works. And yet it goes much deeper than this because you can believe all of the right things about Jesus, meaning you can check all of the right boxes, you can come to church each and every Sunday, and yet you can still be under the power of sin and death simply because you are what the Bible would call a fool. Again, the reason is quite simple. The Christian faith is not merely this body of facts that you must believe. It's not simply this esoteric head knowledge that you must accept. The reality is that you must come to trust in and love what the Bible teaches concerning Jesus Christ. As much as I hate the statement, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, there's some reality to that statement, isn't there? It's both. It's not one or the other, but the reality is you can't have all the trappings of a Christian religion and yet not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If that describes you, if you are the one described as the one who believes there is this religion that you can have without understanding and worshiping Jesus, biblically, the scriptures would deny that as a valid faith as well. You are, biblically speaking, the fool. The fool is just simply the person who is defined as the one of unbelief, meaning they are ungodly. And while we think of that term as if they are character deficient, the reality is that ungodliness is describing ultimately a state of being, who you are as a person. The ungodly person does not think of God. They do not conduct their life as if there is a God. They do not think of the coming judgment. What ungodliness describes in Scripture is not that you are somehow the most heinous sinner on earth. It's not that you are the murderer or the pedophile or the rapist or whoever we tend to think about. The ungodly one is just simply one who does not think of God. They are not mindful of him. They go about their everyday life with little passing thought to the true God. The reality is that it's an altogether different thing when we stop and we consider how have we embraced a form of ungodliness rather than we always looking out at somebody else, if that makes sense. Now, perhaps it is most often found in the compartmentalization of your life, meaning that you have various parts of your life which you have not yet submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is actually that there are just parts of your life that have not been affected by what you believe. Think of it like this. You come to the church, you serve each and every week, you faithfully read your Bible, you witness to the lost, you do all these different things that we would say are great things to do as a Christian, and yet you have this cankerous sin in the background that you are not yet willing to depart yourself from. That is what the Bible would call the religious hypocrite. 
God knows what's on our hearts. God knows the basis of what it is that we actually love and treasure and trust in. We have all sorts of different sins that we will give up time and again, and yet the reality is there are those sins that we coddle and we love and we stroke affectionately and say, no, I will not get rid of that one, not yet. When it is on my terms and on my time, I'll repent of it. That's what the Bible would simply call the hypocrite, the willful hypocrite. This is what David is even focusing on here in this psalm where he's talking about the one who is the practical atheist. This is all that ungodliness is in a nutshell. It's a presumptuous notion that you have more time, you can be more faithful later, that God overlooks your personal private sins with a mere shrug of indifference. But what is to say that if you regularly treat the commands of God as if they are merely trite suggestions, that you are not the ungodly one? You are not, as the Bible would define it, the fool. The ungodly person, or rather the fool, is the one, again, who just lives life according to the desires of their heart. That's it. That's so simple, isn't it? It doesn't have to be this massive list of sins that we are chasing after. It is merely the one who does what their heart desires at all times. That heart, as the Bible would have it, is desperately sick, deceived, and full of wickedness, and it can only produce what it loves. The reason for this from Scripture, again, is clear, and I talked about this in the last sermon, but the heart is the wellspring from which everything else flows, meaning it is the one place that will produce everything that you do, everything that you love, everything that you are flows from the heart, and a dead heart can only produce deeds worthy of death. It can only showcase loves of death. It can never, and hear me on this, it can never love Jesus Christ or even love the way of wisdom. It's all designed to simply say that a dead heart cannot delight in righteousness. A dead heart will only ever delight in death. And yet we don't think like that, do we? Really think on that statement for a moment. A dead heart can only delight in the way of death. It's not merely that the deadened heart and mind simply rejects the way of wisdom and rejects the way of life. The deadened heart and mind loves the very things that know will bring them to hell. That's how the Bible describes sin. Do you see how desperate that really is? I mean, really, do you see that there's literally nothing that can be done to change the dead heart of the person that you love apart from a supernatural work? You're dealing with dead affections and dead loves at the deepest level of who that person is. And unless there's some new supernatural work through the Spirit of God, nothing can be done. The dead heart will only ever continue to love the way of death. That is the bleak reality of how the Bible describes the natural human condition. There are only two things the dead heart loves, sin and their father, Satan. Because the fool has these two chief loves of their sin and Satan, ultimately, everything else flows from that reality. What I mean by that is simple, that their entire way is bent on destruction. It is bent on the way of sin. It is bent on the way of their father, Satan. 
the way of the fool, he says, if you look down, we're going to continue now through the rest of the psalm because I want to define this reality for you is that it's just bent on abominable deeds of injustice, which is what the remainder of verse 1 tells us. To put that even more clearly, all he's saying is that the deadened heart ultimately will produce perversion of every sort, but it's not content to just stop there, right? It's not content to just let it be by its own or be for that own person. I want you to see David just piles on the terms throughout the rest of this psalm and the rest of this section in in particular, but what he's doing is just building a case. And all that he's showing is that humanity at its rawest, purest form is rotten at the core. That's how God sees the world. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse 1 here. David says, they are corrupt. Again, speaking of mankind, they are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. When he speaks of this corruption and this abominable injustice, as he puts it here, he has a specific reference, not just to that person, but ultimately to their iniquity or to their sin. If you were to translate this in a woodenly literal way, it might be read something like this. They corrupt and make abominable their iniquity, or they corrupt and make abominable their sin. What David shows us is really incredible when you just stop to think about it, because It's much the same thing that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 1. He describes mankind as inventors of evil, right? It's not that they are content to just do evil, but that they invent new forms of evil continually, right? They are not content to be corrupt in their nature as human beings. They have to corrupt even their corruption. That's what he's describing here. The fool's wickedness is so severe, he even corrupts evil itself. Again, think of the reality of what's being said here. There's, there's two different words he's using to describe how good they are at doing this, but the first is corrupt, and it's the same word that's used in Genesis 6 to speak of the whole human race in Noah's day, right? You just got done with this in your Bible reading, but he says, every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. That's how God saw mankind at the time of the flood, That's the greatest possible description of the human heart there is in its natural form. That's what the Bible just says is at our good gooey center, if you will. Every intent of the thoughts of man. So before you even have a thought, every intent of it, we're speaking about the intent of your thoughts, is only evil continually. That's how corrupt the heart is. That's how corrupt it still is. Again, we think of this only in time or the time of the flood, but the reality is the flood didn't solve that issue. The flood couldn't solve that issue. All the flood could do was wipe out a large group of people and kill every last man, woman, and child except for Noah and his family simply because he covenanted with them. It was not designed to solve the human heart. It was an act of judgment. What he's saying ultimately in this psalm, what he said of the world in Genesis 6 is that the human heart is defiled, disrupted by sin beyond repair. And the only thing that prevents God from wiping out all of humanity this day is the fact that he made covenant with Noah. That's, That's it, guys. That's literally the base level of why God does not judge all the earth at this exact moment is because he made covenant with Noah 
and that he is waiting until the final day in which he will judge the living and the dead, and that all things must take place before then. If this were not enough, I want you to notice what David says to the fool continuing on in this passage. Look down with me. But what he says is that he, he says they commit abominable injustice. Right? There are many things the Bible calls an abomination, but at the end of the day, all it speaks to is something that's utterly vile and reprehensible, distasteful, detestable, something God hates, in other words. The point of its use here is very, very simple. He says that even their sin has become further detestable, further defiled, abominable before the Lord because they've somehow found a way to pervert what's already been perverted. Isn't that just an incredible statement? Isn't that an incredible statement on the depravity of man? Really, it's not enough that we are sinners who naturally go the way of death and rebel against God. Ultimately, he says, we find ways to twist sin even more than it's already been twisted. That's how screwed up the human heart is. We, we take that which is already distasteful and detestable, hated by God, and we make it even more hated. We don't even have to try all that hard to do it. To make it even worse, though, David just takes all of this and he looks at it here in verse 1 and he says, look, there is no one who does good. Not a single soul. Now, you may reject that, but ultimately, this is what Scripture says. And I don't care if you reject that. I want to put that as plainly as possible. The Bible doesn't care if you reject that. The Bible just simply tells you this is what God looks at humanity like. So you can reject it, you can dismiss it, you can ignore it. But the reality is, it doesn't matter what you and I think. This is God's definitive word on the human condition. Not basically good, not innocent, not even trying to be good, but those who corrupt and make abominable their iniquity. Those who corrupt and make their corruption even more corrupt. God describes the human race as those who walk with great intent and energy to come up with new ways of sin and simply make God all the angrier at them. And that's your son, that's... That's your daughter, that's your wife, that's any who are apart from Jesus Christ. Those who do not place their hope and trust and love in Jesus Christ. Understand that. It's a zero-sum game. Nobody gets to wiggle out from it. Nobody gets to ultimately deny it because at the end of all days, guess what's going to come before us? But the text. That's the whole human race, though. That's what he says here. There's no one who does good. But guys, it gets even worse than this. So look with me. I mean, I want you to, to literally look at the text with me because this is not something that I want you to think at the end of the day, I'm making up just because I want to make you feel bad. I need you to look at the text with me and see what does God actually say here? You heard Mike read it earlier, but verses two through three, David just simply writes, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands who seeks after God, and here's the result of his survey. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The way David 
describes God here as if he just simply bends down intently and he's, he's searching through every nook and cranny of humanity to find some innate level of goodness. But instead, what he comes up with is that the whole human race is bound together in the folly of unbelief. That's the assessment. In many ways, right, it's, it, again, you just finished this in your Bible reading, but it's about the same as when Abraham is talking to God. He's making a plea for Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember how he asks God, if you will find 50 righteous people, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And God tells him, yes, yes, I will. And he whittles the Lord all the way down to just 10 people. Will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if just 10 people are found to be righteous? But there's not even 10 people, are there? That's, a, that's an incredible statement, isn't that? That's saying something. Well, here, the situation's even worse, guys. The survey that God takes is on humanity as a whole. Not just one city, not just one region. It's not Vegas or Sin City, if you will. He looks at all the earth and he says, here's my conclusion. Not even one. The Lord is bent over creation and looked upon all mankind intently to see if anyone understands, if anyone seeks after God. And he concludes, not a single soul in all of creation. This examination is not just a mere statement, by the way. It's God's judgment. It's a pronouncement of judgment. That we, we tend to see God's judgment as merely the time where he pours out wrath and destroys a town or people by fire and brimstone. But the mere proclamation that there is not even one who is righteous in their own natural condition, that's judgment. The fire, the brimstone, everything else, the agony, the screaming, the bloody mess, that's the fruit of judgment. The judgment is that God looks upon mankind and he says the human race is corrupt in every single way. So when you hear somebody say we're under the judgment of God, beloved, they are always correct. But I want you to understand what that ultimately means here. Notice the descriptions given of mankind in these two verses here. Again, look with me at the text. He says, there's no one who understands. No one who understands. It's the same reality the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But Paul's point is simply that the natural man, that is the person who is the unbeliever, is in a position where they ultimately cannot understand the things of God. Not that they don't desire to understand the things of God, that they literally cannot understand the things of God. They look upon them, they look upon the truth of God, and they say, this is utter foolishness. They will reject it out of hand every single time, and it's literally because they're incapable of understanding it in their natural condition. And this was you and this was me prior to knowing Jesus Christ. It's everyone. This is a default position of everybody. They cannot discern spiritual truths. And so he says, ultimately, they will not unless God thinks, or God makes these things known to them. This is why, by the way, you can spend every ounce of energy you have with an unbeliever and try to convince them of all sorts of different proofs for the Christian faith to little to no effect. It's not because you're terrible at arguing. I mean, maybe you are, 
But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because the reality is that the deadened heart and mind literally will reject the things of God out of hand because they do not understand God. You can argue things like creationism, abortion, homosexuality, gender roles, whatever you want to take up and argue, but at the end of the day, it will bring them no closer to understanding the God of this universe unless the Spirit of God will work in conjunction with God's Word to bring them to understand the truth. But even if they get that, they're still no closer to heaven because they have not yet heard the gospel. Beloved, we need to get that they will never understand the things about God, for one, unless the word of God is taught to them or preached to them, but for two, that the Spirit will actually take the word of God and apply that in a way that they can understand it. It has to happen through the work of the Spirit. And the reason for it all is simply, as the text says here, there's this judgment of God already resting upon them that none understand. Secondly, he says there is no one who seeks after God. And this really comes off the same reality of what I just spoke to. People may desire the blessings of God. They might want to avoid hell and go to heaven. But ultimately, there is no one who seeks after God for himself. That's what God says of humanity here. He says, the person that you think is coming to church every single week because they're seeking after God? No, the person that you're having delightful conversations with and you're opening up the word of God, that they're seeking after God? He says, no. Now, perhaps God is drawing them by the spirit that one day he will bring them to faith, but the reality is there is no one who seeks after God. And this is probably one of the most difficult things for us to accept, isn't it? We like to think the opposite of what the text says, that they are seeking after God, that someone is genuinely chasing after God. But the reality is that if they genuinely sought after God, or if you did, and I mean that apart from Jesus Christ, if you sought after God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, you would ultimately have no need for the gospel because you would not sin. Seeking after God is not merely this Christianity light, if you will. It's not mildly entertaining the idea of the Christian faith or mildly entertaining obedience to God's commands. Seeking after God means running full vim and vigor toward everything that he has said in order that you may glorify him. Ultimately, our darkened hearts and minds prevent us from being able to do so. I mean, think of it like a Christian, right? For those of you who have embraced Jesus Christ, you still struggle with this, just as I do. Right? Even on my, my best days, when I want to obey the Lord with everything that I have, I'm still a procrastinator at heart. <laughs> I'm still fighting the flesh every single day. Everything that David is going to say from here, though, is just showing the utter futility of mankind in their natural state and with their natural affections. He says that as a result of their darkened hearts and minds, essentially, their rejection of the one true God, their life is just this ebb and flow of futility that they exist in. And this is what he talks about now in verses three and following. Where he says, every one of them has turned aside. They are all together corrupt or like sour, spoiled milk. And then he just simply reiterates the point that he made earlier, this time with an even greater emphasis. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Not one solitary soul in all existence is capable of doing good apart from the grace of God. That's the result of God's survey on mankind. It's, it's bleak, isn't it? They are in every way, shape, and form under the curse and dominating power of sin. That's just what this text says. And he says, ultimately, it's all on the basis of the rejection of God. Everything flows from that reality in verse 1. And this is what I would say is ultimately the first characteristic of what the Bible would call the fool. The fool is a person who in every, every way is still under the power and dominion of sin. They have rejected God in their heart of hearts and they are helpless, but not in the, oh, woe is me type of helplessness. They are literally unable to escape and climb out from their own predicament. And yet they keep digging their hole all the deeper because that's what they know best to do. And yet things don't even stop here. The psalm just continues to peg the fool, which is all of us apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, right between the eyes. It just says that the fool lives out their folly and their rejection of God. In every way, it just bleeds out, it oozes out because it can't help it. And so what we see now is a second characteristic of the fool is that they ultimately, because they hate God, they hate God's people. And so they seek to destroy God's people, but they are literally unaware of the fact that everything they do is now leading to their own undoing, all right? They, they persecute the people of God, and yet it will be to their own demise. And that's what he's going to introduce to us here in verse 4. So if you look at the text once again, here we have God himself speaking. There's this confusion almost, if you will, and, and not that God is confused, but there's a sense in which he's even almost shocked. He's like, have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? And the wording of this verse shows that there's just, for one, this utter casualness and callousness with which the, the wicked just showcase their lack of knowledge, but ultimately he's going to demonstrate that this lack of knowledge plays out in two very important ways. The first is that they devour the people of God, right? He says that they devour them as if they are merely eating pieces of bread. And there's a sort of indifference to it, this casual indifference to the slaughter of God's children. Like it's just another part of their daily routine. And if you think through the history of just the church, there are countless stories of persecution throughout the history of the church that show that there's this flippant hatred of God's people all throughout the ages, right? And it's ultimately derived from the fact that they hate the God that is, right? There, there's a story of a former Soviet secret police officer named Sergei. Now, Sergei is a man who is going around and breaking up prayer meetings during the Soviet Union's reign, and he recounts the story of how he persecuted a woman named Natasha. And he describes her treatment not once but twice during two separate raids on prayer meetings, in the first one, he doesn't participate, right? He's there, he's breaking up the meeting, but another man does the beating. He says, she was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer. Victor caught her and picked her up above his head and held her high in the air for a second. And she was pleading, no, please don't. Dear God, help us. And Victor threw her so hard, she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown and then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious and moaning. And Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying right out of her head. 
And the second time, only three days later, get that, three days after this woman is just brutally thrown at the wall, at another prayer meeting, Sergei takes it upon himself to do the beating this time. He writes, I picked her up and I flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. One of my men held her down and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister and I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off on my hand and she moaned. She fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cry, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her backside was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table and she collapsed onto the floor. That is what it looks like, beloved, when people can freely exercise their hatred against you and of God. That's a mild story, by the way, because if you know anything of martyrdom within the history of the church, there are many, many more brutal stories than this. But it reminds us, painfully so, that this world has no genuine love for the Christian, for the genuine Christian, and it's ultimately because they have no genuine love for the God that is. Right? The world will accept the fake Christian or the false Christian any day of the week. The one who is always at the forefront of the popular cultural movements and sanctioning every form of evil, they'll love that type of Christian. But for the one who stands strong upon the foundation of the word of God, the one who just simply even preaches the gospel, you're going to have to deal with things like sin. You're going to have to deal with things like the various social movements of our day. They're going to hate. Now, you and I might not be in this position at all at this point today. We may never face it a day in our life, but the reality is nonetheless true. You go to any country across the globe in which they are openly persecuting Christians, and it looks like this. If it was open season in our country tonight, let's say laws were passed tonight, what do you think would happen tomorrow? I mean that. What do you think would actually happen tomorrow? They cannot attack the God that is himself. And so what do they do but go for the very next best thing they know? This has been the case ever since the very beginning. But they never think of how foolish it is, beloved. They never think of how foolish it is because if they knew who God was, they knew such deeds would bring his, they would know such deeds bring his wrath, but they would also know that he will forgive even such people as this. That's the incredible thing about God's mercy ultimately. And this is how he just shows their folly plays out in a different way, right? The first way is they devour the faithful like pieces of bread. And then the second, he said, they don't cry out to him. Now, get that in your minds, because we, we immediately see the first one, and we're like, oh, they don't see judgments coming. But no, he says, they don't even cry out to this God they despise. They don't even cry out to this God whom his children they kill as if they are nothing. They don't call out to this God because they refuse to see that there is a need for God. But especially for salvation, I put it 
bluntly a different way, why cry out to the God that you believe does not exist? Why cry out to the God you deny in your folly? All he's showing here is that this, this mark of unbelief plays out in a life of prayerlessness. It's not only just as casual indifference and hatred toward the very people of God, it's that you have an indifference towards the God of this universe as well. Right? They're tied intimately one to one another. The one who does not pray to God does not see their need for his help, for one. I mean, that's very, very clear. But they also don't see their need for forgiveness, so they never cry out to God for it. They will never cry out to God on behalf of other people. All he's saying here is that they, they just simply do not see the need to give God thanks or to worship him as he is due or to cry out to him as they need him. All it is, in a nutshell, is just the same lack of faith playing out in various different ways. It's being shown for what it is. But this is ultimately why you will also hear so many people mock prayer on a day of tragedy. At the heart of it, though, it just reflects a lack of desire to commune with the God that is. Right? They, in the beginning, are fools because they have rejected God in their heart. And so the reality of their heart is playing out in all these different ways, one of which is to be under the power and dominion of sin. The next is to devour God's people as if they're pieces of bread. And this other one is just simply that they just don't even care. They don't care about the God of the universe. They have no desire to have direct fellowship with him. They reject it. But the reality is it's not even done here. They do all of this without a fear of judgment. That's what he's now going to continue to say in, in, in the next verse here. But there's a sense of ignorance conveyed in the passage that they don't really know what they do. And it's not that they don't know what they do. Rather, they don't know the seriousness with which they do it, if that makes better sense. right? They have no true sense of just how alienated and estranged and under the judgment of God they actually are. They are blissfully ignorant to the fact that God is watching them all the while that he's watching them devour the faithful, God's watching them be completely, utterly mindless of him, that God has watched them in their heart of hearts reject him time and time and time again. And he says, ultimately, they just simply don't call on this one that can save them. They pretend as if that day will never come, but judgment indeed shall come. And this is what verse 5 tells us. This is why it's ultimately folly. He says, they were there... They were in great fear where no fear had been. Why? For God had scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. That's God's people. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. All right, so this verse just speaks of a time where this sudden ruin comes upon the day, or for the wicked on the day of judgment, rather. They had encamped against God's people. They devoured them as if they were pieces of bread. But picture them like the fool in Proverbs 1. Lady Wisdom is just crying out at the gates day after day after day, saying, here's the way of wisdom. Come, follow this God that you reject. Do not despise the people of the Lord. And yet they reject her all the while. And what happens on one fateful day is that simply calamity overtakes them, or rather, as the scriptures would say, evil. Evil overtakes them. They fall into ruin. They cry out to Lady Wisdom, finally, And yet on that day, what happens but that she is nowhere to be found? But it's not that Lady Wisdom is merely hiding in Proverbs 1. She actually laughs and scoffs at the fool. 
She's actually lack or mocking them with much derision because she, they have continually rejected her treasures of wisdom. And so all you see is just that they lived many days without fear of reprisal or judgment, but ultimately they come in a sudden and great dread. And on that day, they finally say, that, okay, enough is enough. I need to call out to him. I need to come back to wisdom. I need to escape judgment, but they can't. That's how sudden and severe all of it is. Right? They're, they're lulled by a sense of false peace and security and a false hope. And he says, on that day, none of that will deliver them. Each and every day, they keep going about their lives, hearing wisdom call out. Maybe it's through their parents. Maybe it's through others who are trying to just simply say, look, this is the reality of what God says. And yet they reject it. And he says, on that day, judgment comes. You will no longer be able to hear that voice. It's just cut off. Notice the reason why all of this takes place, though, at least according to Psalm 53. He says, God has rejected them. That's the basis of it. God has rejected them. It's not that they rejected God and that's somehow that they had power over the God of this universe. No. God says, you want it your way? Fine. I utterly reject you. I'm now going to hand you over to your folly. I'm going to hand you over to your own destruction for your failure to repent, for your failure to call upon the name of the one who can save, for your devouring of my people. And all that does is to show the true folly of the fool. In every bit of it, the fool just refuses to look beyond their nose and see that everything that they do, the very steps that they take, are all just laying the path and the foundation to their own judgment. This is the great irony of the one who rejects God. (laughs) This is what he's been showing this entire time, is that, look, you can reject God, but he's still present. You can deny his existence, you can minimize it, downplay it, slough it off, be the lazy man or woman, however you want to play it. But none of that changes the fact that God exists and he is who he has said he is. And you know it. Every one of you know it. It doesn't matter if you deny God and his word, not in the grand scheme of things. I want to make that clear. The Bible just simply proclaims ultimate truth about who God is, what he has done, and you will either believe it or you will reject it. But the truthfulness of Scripture does not hinge on whether or not you believe it to be true. That's just not how the truth works. If you are the fool who lives as if there is no God, there will never be a day of judgment. Again, that doesn't change anything. He's still the righteous judge. Imagine going to a courtroom, right? You're on trial because you've killed a man. And you look at the judge and say, I don't believe you have the authority to judge. You don't have the right to do it. And he says, congratulations, you are now going to jail for two life terms. You fool. You can live as a functional atheist. You can act as if God doesn't care about the way you live, but that doesn't change that God is the judge. Again, the Bible just simply proclaims this reality, and you either accept it or you reject it, but your rejection of it will never change that reality. 
the Bible's just kind of in your face about all this stuff, isn't it? And then even through here, we see that if you're the fool who refuses to cry out to God because you think you can do it on your own time, he basically just says there's a day coming where it's too late. There's a day that comes where you're going you're gonna to cry out to God, and yet you'll find that he just simply rejects you out of hand because the time has already been decided. Countless men and women all throughout history have de- delayed repentance, presuming that God is always patient, that God is always loving towards them, God is always kind, that every single day they live is just another day in which they can do whatever they want because at the end of their days when they die, then they'll give over their lives. None of us know the day or the hour, though, do we? Is it not the height of arrogance to just assume that you always have more time? For all you know, you will leave here today and come face to face with your maker, and what will you say? Truthfully, what will, what will you say? If this is you, if you're the fool who has rejected God time and time again, and you have simply said, well, I thought I had more time. You had all the time in the world. If you're the fool who devours the faithful in your hatred of God, maybe you can't openly kill them or show hostility, but you will mock them. Do you understand that there's literally nothing that you're accomplishing? You're not robbing them of any real joy. You're not taking their heavenly inheritance from them. You're not stopping the work of Jesus Christ in building his church. You can't. Entire civilizations have tried to stamp out the Christian faith in their midst, but all they've accomplished ever is that the church just grows. The truth just continues to go forth. They persecute the faithful. Guess what the faithful do? They either die and glorify God in the midst of their death, or they go to another country and they bring the gospel with them. Church doesn't stop growing, does it? You can hate God all you want. You can hate God's commands. You can hate his people, but none of that changes anything at the end of the day. I want to make that as painfully clear as I I can. We tend to picture God as an emotional woman much of the time, and I don't mean that in any kind of crass way. It's just we, we look at God as if he's sitting in heaven and weeping and bemoaning the fact that you don't believe, but he doesn't. He doesn't cry. He doesn't wring his hands and think, if only they loved me. That's not how God thinks. He's busy about the work of building his kingdom, and whether or not you and I are part of that at the end of the day doesn't change the fact that God will have his kingdom at the end of the day. Now, God desires that you would be saved. That's why you're even here hearing the gospel all the time. God desires that we would be faithful to preach the gospel to the lost. But the great irony of the one who rejects God is just just that. It's not as if God is now somehow changed in the substance of who he is, that he's somehow less God or that he is lacking something because you're not there with him. At the end of the day, all it testifies to is that though many are always seeking to overcome God in various different ways, they will always fail and God will not. God will always remain self-sufficient. God will always remain the true embodiment of justice and love and mercy and everything else in between, regardless of whether or not you and I accept the reality about who God is. 
God has promised a day of judgment. Whether you ignore it, reject it, or dismiss it, the day is coming. None of that changes. God keeps on raising up new believers no matter how many times people try to kill them. But he also promises to judge with perfect righteousness, rather, any who persecute the faithful. But the beautiful thing is that day of judgment is still a day of great salvation for those who are God's children. And that's the crazy reality that we often just simply don't see. And that bleeds into the final proposition I'm going to make today about the fool who rejects God, is that they ultimately cannot destroy the hope of the righteous. Right? God's promises will always prevail. The righteous will never ultimately lose hope in the midst of whatever you may throw at them because they can't. That hope doesn't fade. That hope doesn't go away. Look with me now at verse 6. And this, this just comes off of the cuffs of what David just said about the characteristics of the fool so far. Right? First, he said that it's not merely that the fool is bound under the power and dominion of sin. It's not merely that they persecute the faithful to their own judgment. He says, the final reality is that I still have hope. I still have hope in my one true God. Verse 6, he writes, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, all throughout this psalm, he has taken deliberate pains to describe the reality of this one the Bible would call a fool, the one that, who rejects God in his own heart. And he says part of that was that they would be persecuted, right? The true believer would be persecuted. From this last line of the psalm, there's this tension that just simply sits there, isn't there? He sees there's a day coming where he knows the unrepentant fool will be brought to justice, that the righteous will be redeemed, but ultimately he's crying out for it, and so that day's not yet come. He cries out to the God that he knows can do it, though, and he says, finally and fully, will you just simply deliver us that we may rejoice? Ultimately, what David has in mind here is far more than just simple deliverance from their immediate oppressors, meaning he's not looking just at the people that are causing them a hard time now. What he's doing is he's looking towards this day when all of Israel, when all of God's people will be free from those great enemies, even of sin, Satan, and death. He's looking towards the day when God will vanquish every last enemy under the sun. And so what he has is just this burning hope that cannot be extinguished. Though the unrighteous and wicked may persecute, he says, you know what? I know that there's a day coming. Lord, would you bring that day forth? You can imagine throughout the history of God's people how this psalm, especially these last lines, would just give them that same burning hope and comfort. I think of as the kingdom is being divided under Jeroboam, right? You have wicked kings taking the place of righteous kings. You have wicked false prophets and priests and everybody else arising. And yet they would look upon it and see, at the end of the day, the wicked are going to destruction. They can reject God's ways all they desire, and yet they cannot take the hope from us that one day, true prophet, priest, and king will come. Think of it in light of even... The exile, right? These people are being sent to Assyria and Babylon. They've destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And yet in the midst of those evil and dark days, they can look at it and say, God one day will lead us out of exile. And yet there will be an even greater day to come in which we'll be truly delivered. 
We will have the Messiah at our head. He will lead us into pastures where war and bondage and slavery and everything else that's part of a miserable existence under the curse of sin will be no more. Just as faithful Israelites took up this psalm, imagine the early church as they're being killed by the hand of the Romans. They could see and know, ultimately, though the Romans may kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. All of this is testifying to that same reality, that same hope that all true Christians have always had and treasured in their hearts. And this is even you and I, if we are genuinely in Christ, it's that no matter what this world may do, you cannot rob us of our inheritance. Think of how glorious that reality is. When you see this earth continuing to go into every form of perversity and every form of crookedness, you know that there's a day coming in which your Savior will return and set all things right. You know that no matter what these men and women may do, even if they were to take you and everything that you have and leave you with nothing, they cannot rob heaven from you. They cannot rob you of your Savior. They cannot rob you of the hope that Jesus will return and make every single thing right and new and glorious. For everyone that's ever believed in the promises of God by faith from the first to the very last, this is the same hope that we have. You may destroy the body, but you cannot destroy the soul. Martin Luther put it this way, you may cut off my head, but the Lord will simply give me a new one. That's the stark reality of what it means to genuinely trust in God. There's a hope that cannot be stripped no matter what people may do. There's a hope that endures through persecution and famine and poverty and sickness of every sort. And it's a hope that ultimately transcends anything this life has to give. But this is ultimately what makes the folly of unbelief so darn foolish and pointless at the end of the day. Nothing can take that hope away. And the fool, though they may believe they can dash the hopes of the righteous, they can't. You think about it. They're going and trying to kill the faithful here. They're devouring them as pieces of bread. All that shows you is that they really don't give a rip about them, and they want to kill them and slaughter them in ways that are cruel and vicious. And in the midst of that, he says, you can't steal my hope. Right? You can reject God. God won't go away. You can live as if there is no God and that he will never judge evil, and yet he will. You can persecute the faithful. You can take everything that they have, but he's just going to usher us into the very next life safely at home. You can rage with every fiber of your being against the God you claim does not exist. But at the end of the day, that changes nothing. He basically is showing in a roundabout way the same reality that I preached on a few weeks back when I said, you can do all of this, and at the end of the day, you're still going to bow the knee to your Savior, but you will bow the knee on your way to hell. The righteous will be unscathed no matter what. Everything in life is hurtling towards that great day, and on that day, the question will simply be, are you the wise man or the fool? And it's not as you define it or as I define it. It's ultimately as the Bible defines it. Are you the wise man or are you the fool, biblically? Have you rejected your maker time and again who will just simply bring you under his condemnation and wrath? Or are you the one who has trusted in the risen 
glorious Jesus Christ who saves and brings life. That's the only difference in the world. That's what makes one either a wise man or a fool. If you're a wise man or a wise woman, the one who would call themselves a Christian, let me just ask you in reflection of all of this, is this not a day to give great thanks for what the Lord has done? This whole psalm described you prior to knowing Jesus Christ. You were dead in your sin. You were rebellious against your maker in every which way you could be. You despised the people of God and you despised the promises of God. And yet he was not content to simply leave you as you were. He took you in the midst of your deadness and your rebellion and brought you to life. And he has set new affections upon your heart and new loves within your heart, new desires. And he has put you on a path in which you are now actually delighting in those very things that you once hated. That's insane. Frankly speaking, that's insane that God would actually still care for you enough to do that. So give great thanks this day, but ask the question, and this is the same question that Matt was driving towards when he preached last. What are the things that you're spending your time doing? Does, does your hope in all of this inform that reality? Have you taken stock in every which way in your life to look at it and say, are these things that are glorifying to my God? Are these things that are informing my hope all the more? I'd ask, what are the ways that you're passing this on to your children? What are the things that you're investing your time and talents and energy and money and everything else into doing? Is it all built in this life? Or is it all focused upon glorifying your God and leading you towards the next life? Are you moved to compassion? I mean, it's easy for us to look down our noses at all sorts of different people because they sin in various different ways than we do. But the reality is that you were pegged just as hard in this psalm as any unbelieving person in this earth. And so my question is, are you looking at that reality, seeing it for what it is, and being moved to proclaim the gospel to these lost people? If you're not, if you're just simply looking down your nose at them, beloved, you're still bound up in much folly. But it's a different kind of folly. But understand, if, if you're the one that would identify as the fool here, and I don't mean you self-identify because nobody wants to do that, right? But if you're the one that's pegged as the fool here, let me just ask you, what actual hope do you have? What genuine hope do you have? The way that this psalm has pegged you in every single way is that you are dead in sin, you are a slave to your sin, you do not submit to God as you ought to, but you serve your own fleshly lusts and your true master of Satan. You do not care for the people of God as you should. You do not do anything but serve your own interests. And you happily do it on the path to hell. But most importantly, you do not see that the hope of the righteous can be your hope as well. That's what I want to close out with at the very end of this psalm today is that at the end of the day, every bit of what you spend your time rejecting time and time again can still be the hope that you have because God is gracious and he has given you yet another day to repent. God has made a way of salvation known even for fools, in other words. And so that way of salvation is, as we have preached it many times here, 
It's ultimately only found by trusting by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life of obedience where you could not, right? I mean, this psalm just obliterates that reality. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to God's good graces. But he did not merely come to live a perfect life of obedience. He came to die on the cross on behalf of sinners, which is you and which is me. When he died, this exchange took place. He takes your sin, but he also then gives you his righteousness. And that alone is what justifies you freely before the Father. Again, it's not your works. It's not something you can do. The only thing you can bring to the table is your sin. But all you can even do with that is simply lay it at the foot of the cross and seek forgiveness. It's only through the death of Jesus Christ that you can be counted righteous. But there's this incredible thing that happens when you embrace that truth by faith. As this psalm described, you were bound under the power of dominion of sin, but that is no longer the case if you trust in Jesus Christ. And that's, again, because he simply rose from the dead and defeated sin, and yet he also defeated death. You have hope if you believe these things. You have hope, in other words, not only of forgiveness, but of eternal life, but more so you have hope that even when he returns, he will bring you into his heavenly kingdom and give you a grace and mercy that you do not deserve. So today, I ask that you stop being the fool who rejects God time and again, but instead be counted as the wise man and simply repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that even though it is a hard word for us to swallow in many ways, as it causes us to face our own true depravity, our own true condition, that you have been incredibly merciful to give us a blessed Savior in Jesus Christ. I pray for any here that do not know Jesus, that you would indeed strike their hearts with conviction, that they may see the truthfulness of the text, that they would see the truthfulness of their own sin before you, that it has brought nothing but severe condemnation and wrath, but that ultimately you would point their gaze to Christ that they may see him for who he truly is, that is the one who takes away the sins of the world. So I pray that as we go home this week, that we reflect upon your goodness and grace to us in Jesus, that we would be diligent to teach our children of this reality, that we would not live our lives uh, fruitlessly, but that we would ultimately seek to submit our lives in every way, shape, and form to your scriptures, that we might present a true hope a true love of not only Jesus Christ and his commands, but of all that you have said within your word. I pray for these people as they go home, you would bring them home safely. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.